So welcome to The Mystic. I'm Dr. Scott Morris with Church Health, and I'm joined one more time with uh, Rabbi Micah Greenstein from Temple Israel and the Reverend Dr. Lillian Lammers um, from First Congregational Church. And we are so glad you're with us here for the month of December. So what is the mystic? It's not Muslim prayers on Friday, Jewish prayers on Saturday, or Christian prayers on Sunday. The mystic is a catalyst. Through music, story, silence, and dialogue, we hope to strengthen our attachment to hopes and dreams. In the mystic, diversity is a prerequisite for all creativity, which is why Crosstown Concourse is the perfect home. In the mystic, the world is far better served by the different beliefs than it could ever be if limited by rigid uniformity. And even if this doesn't rock your gypsy soul, the goal of the mystic is to not feel better, but get better at feeling. I ask that we are filled with the strength to open our hearts and treasure the differences that distinguish us. And may the music of compassion, kindness, spirit, and insight fill this hour. We were born before the wind So much younger than the sun The Barnabo was one into the mystic. I hard now hear the sailors cry, feel the wind and taste the sky. Let your soul and spirit fly. Into the mystic And when that fog home blows I will be coming home When that fog home whistle blows Just like days ago And magnificently we will flow Into the mystic And when that fog home blows I will be coming home When that foghorn whistle blows I want to hear it I don't want to fear it I want to rock your gypsy soul Just like days 
years ago And magnificently we will flow Into the mystic Suddenly we will flow into the mystic. So y'all, it is December, and uh, in the world uh, that all three of us live in, it is time to raise money in order to meet our budgets. You know, when we started the mystic five years ago now, hard to believe it's been that long. Um, one of the things that I really thought was important with what we were doing here is this whole idea of get better, better at feeling. But what we were never going to do is pass the hat. You know, we were not going to take up a collection. Mm. We weren't going to worry about how to, how to pay for the mystic. It was an opportunity for us really just to focus on our own spiritual growth and development and to have our own souls fed. And yet the reality is, all three of us are professional beggars. Mm. You know, that, that is sort of how we live our lives. Um, Robin Hood. Robin Hood. <laughs> I, okay, well, to that point, Mike, I, I, I want to hear you as a pastor, um, and you've raised all of our souls and touched them at some point or the other, but the fact of the matter is, is that in order to run Temple Israel, that there is a bottom line. Well, I have a pet peeve when people talk about church health or, or other entities like ours as being nonprofits. So we are not a nonprofit. You know, we are a not-for-profit. And I emphasize that because nonprofits go broke. You know, in order for us to be successful, at the end of the day, we have to have a black bottom line. And I have to focus on that. And I have to figure out how we pay all of our staff every uh, two weeks because without that— you know, we are our people. That's the only way we can do this. But, but, but Micah, t just talk in general about your view of money and how you see money as uh, important in your work as a minister. I'm reminded of during this month of December, since it's Christmas, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, around Jesus's time, actually, the rabbis of his time said, no dough, ain kemach, no transmission of the, trans of the tradition. You need dough to transmit the tradition to live on, but no transmission of the tradition, no dough. And yet, the Bible, I think, naively presumes with this idea of tithing in the scriptures we share that since people get to keep 90%, they'll naturally give 10% away. Now, I know our Mormon friends and many of our African-American, predominantly African-American churches do tithe. If only more of my people actually gave away 10%, I'm not saying people aren't charitable or generous, but it's like we need year-end giving we actually need this idea of year-end giving to stimulate people to give charity at the end of the year. It's very interesting. Why does there need to be year-end giving? It's a tax incentive because maybe whether you're Jewish, Christian, Muslim, atheist, we're all inherently more selfish than selfless. I don't mean that judgmentally, just descriptively. Do you agree, Lillian? Uh, unfortunately, I think that's probably true. I, and I think so much of the Bible talks about the human condition of as being innately selfish. There are so many stories of that. Um, at our church, we just wrapped up the Sunday before Thanksgiving with uh, the season of giving, which is our five weeks focused on our pledge campaign and getting folks to commit for the year to come. As opposed to the rest of the year. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, we 
we collect and we we pass the you know offering basket around every sunday but there's there's this intentional season where we get people to commit to what they will give over the course of the coming year which is a practical need to create budgets and whatnot but um i've noticed that one of the hallmarks of that season is in our worship experiences in our communications that go out is this very intentional focus on showing all that we do as a community and all of the people that we touch in this city because of the work that we do. I think to to try to give people a sense of your money's not just, we're not just serving ourselves. The money doesn't just, you know, go to pretty things in the church, but that that the work that that comes as a result of that giving is so far spread. And, you know, First Congo is kind of a distinct place. So at any given time, there's over 20 nonprofits operating out of the building that pay next to nothing for the, the space. And so really we can make a case that the reach um, of our church and the money that goes to support that um, is quite extensive. But I'm always interested to say, boy, we, we don't do this intentional uh of a push of pointing our finger and saying, look what we're doing, um, except during that season. And I think it's to try to drive home that point of, please continue to give and, su- and support this work. I can but relate Michael, to that. E- even uh, the dead. We have 7,000 souls resting in the oldest Jewish cemetery in the South. It's our Temple Israel Cemetery. It's 19 acres. Who pays for that? Yeah. Well, so, Michael, you, you brought up the issue of tithing. Um, this was a few years ago now, but a pastor of a fairly significant church in Memphis just very honestly told his congregation, hey, I, I don't tithe. He got fired for that, um, wow. for, for being honest and saying, I, I'm not giving 10% back. Um, and I think the congregation's view is, as well, if you're not giving 10%, how could you be asking me? Um, yeah, I, I just, I think our understanding of, of money is so skewed and, and your point that you were making there about it being a tax break, is that the only way we think about, you know, giving both to our congregation or to other not-for-profits? You're a physician, you're not a surgeon, but you give shots and a knife, you're your partner, your husband, is also a physician. And a knife can be used to maim or to heal. And I think money is a means mm. to goodness. Mm-hmm. It can keep, be keep used. I was being that. facetious yeah. about Robin Hood. One doesn't steal from the rich to give to the poor, but it's to help people aware of, of their power to do good, no matter what they have. And, and this is an important point I have found in my ministry. There's no correlation between wealth and generosity. Uh, and to your point about pastors who may serve disadvantaged communities and give 10% are more generous than those more materially blessed like myself who don't give that. Mm. Do you concur, Oh, Absolutely. I mean, I I see it all the time. I mean, you know, I've told the story before, but um, at one point I had an elderly woman in her late 80s who would literally save a nickel a day. And when she came to see me for her visit, she would bring me a bag of nickels that she had saved Mm. since the last time uh, she was there. I mean, this woman had nothing. I mean, she was living off of her Social Security, which was probably less than, at that point, $300 a month. And yet, in her mind, she knew that that nickel wasn't very much. I mean, you know, she wasn't thinking that this was going to make that much difference, but it was what she could give. I mean, it's truly the story of the widow's might. It is. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think what you're naming there is what I think I continue to come back to, which is that giving in and of itself is a spiritual discipline. And if we started to look at it more as that than as an obligation or something that we do to feel good about ourselves at holiday time. But if we really understood that the the act of giving um, changes us, it's not even about trying to necessarily change the world around us. It changes us because nice. it says something about how we are acknowledging the interconnectedness of all of us 
Um, and I, I do think there's a reason that for me that's particularly powerful around the holidays, just because everything is magical and lovely. And, and so doing that act of giving during the end of the year is usually how I operate because of that. But I, I think that framing for me of I give because it changes me, it also does good in the world, but it changes me, um, is a more powerful way to look at, at giving as a spiritual discipline. So, so Lillian, you, you were involved at, with fundraising at some point at Vanderbilt, weren't you? And Thank, <laughs> Thankfully, no. Um, but I wasn't. Well, you just had a title that I, sounded like I that. I did. Yes, it had it had stewardship, stewardship in it, which of course for most people means fundraising. But my I I oversaw a grant from the Lilly Endowment where it was my responsibility to educate graduate students training to be ministry professionals about how to think about money their own personal finances, um, and also how to think about money once they get out in the world in professional settings. And so um, it it was challenging work because we're given a lot of really unhealthy messages about money in the world. (laughs) Well, and I think I've experienced clergy to have some of the the worst uh, understandings of what money means. Um, So this pastor I talked about who gets fired because of not tithing, the reality is I think his congregation may have realized that he didn't have a giving spirit to begin with. And uh, it wasn't just about the money because you know, what I truly believe is that um, a money, money is just a reflection of our values and who we are um, in reality and, and how we spend that money. Um, you know, I can learn a lot about somebody by just watching them spend money. Um, or perhaps it's not what people spend or even what they save, but what they give, like that 80-year-old person. Yeah. Um, so well, so for both of y'all, in, from the pulpit right now, I mean, surely you're expected at some point to, to call your congregation and say, it, it is the giving season. So, so what is your message to people? I never feel like I'm fundraising. I feel like I'm ensuring the future of a caring community and a heritage and a tradition. If I ever felt like I was selling a commodity, I would stop doing what I'm doing. Mm. I think the word prosperity ministry is an oxymoron. Wow. Uh, The spectrum that you laid out of that colleague of ours who was fired for not giving 10%. I'm not going to lie. I think we didn't give 10. We gave like 8 I'm not fired, but it's aspirational. I'm, I'm aiming towards that. And um, I think he should be rehired because between 5 and 10% actually is okay. <laughs> 10 is supposed to be the high end. But some people give more. We even had a member who gave too much. We had to talk him out of giving so much. His, his children called me in to talk to him. But do you all feel like you're raising money when you are ensuring the future of Church Health or First Congo? Yeah, I mean, look, I, asking people for money is something I have to do literally every day. Um, there, there are so many other things to do to fill my time, and it's easy to go do it and and feel like I've accomplished something. But but what I know is that the um, the privilege I think of of engaging people who have means to help those who don't. Um, is so unbelievably rewarding um, because to the point you're making, Lillian, it is about both folks. You know, at Church Health, uh, you know, we are endlessly talking about that being healthy is encompassing three things, having more joy, having more love, and have it and being driven closer to God. So if that is not the experience of people who support Church Health financially, then they should go give their money somewhere else. You know, supporting us should bring about more joy, more love, and drive them closer to God. And I think that's true about people who work with us. Um, it, but money is a reflection of the experience of how your life can be transformed by this intangible uh, that money represents. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I I noted teaching uh, graduate students about how to think about money and whether we were talking about our personal individual budgets or we were talking about a future church you might serve and their budget or a nonprofit. 
Um, one of the things we often talked about is a budget is a theological document because it is a values document. And um, I think that 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 ad- adding that into the equation, and, you know, it ties to that scripture that talks about where you store up your treasure, your heart will be also, that how often do we actually look at our budgets and where our money goes and ask, is this a reflection of who I am? Or, a budget is a theological document. That's... Uh... That's absolutely worth pondering on. All right, so we're going to take a break and uh, hear music, which is what brings us all together.
So y'all, um, COVID has been the reality that we've all lived with now for almost two years, you know, c- coming up March. Uh, it'll just be here tomorrow. And, you know, we at some point have, I feel, dealt with it quite well. And then there's other times when we just are wringing our hands nonstop. Um, I got a uh, an email here recently from um, Momentum Nonprofit Partners, which sort of looks at all the not-for-profits in Memphis. And it was a little unsettling when they do a survey of the not-for-profits in Memphis, for which there are literally thousands. I think 9,400. It rivals Cambodia and the third world, doesn't it, in terms of number right. of nonprofits? Oh, wow. Yeah, so I guess so part of the question – so the, my two things here. One is that an, a lot of not-for-profits in Memphis are not doing particularly well this year. They may have done well during the first year of COVID, not so well this year. Um, many of the ones that are not doing well – are actually led by African-Americans as opposed to larger not-for-profits led by Caucasians. I don't know what that means, but that seems to be a reality. Um, and, and then the third issue here is just like, so has COVID created true compassion fatigue? So people just want to move on. And we, we only want to care about ourselves. Um, well, I, I first want to respond to this issue of race and who's in charge. Uh, the leader of the umbrella of all our non-for-profits, United Way, is the great Dr. Kenneth Robinson. Um, I don't think it's a correlation between one's skin color and member. I think what it is is there are a lot of tiny non-profit, not-for-profits. Uh, you might call them mom-pa shops. And this raises the question of benchmarks for impact. So you've asked Lillian and and me to comment on giving in general. Uh, Does the donor not also have a fair expectation for accountability, transparency, and and impact? And that's a tough one because how do you sunset a not-for-profit if it does have noble aims but may not be moving the needle. We're in the green room here, and I believe it took hundreds of millions of dollars to do this uh, catalyst for positive social change, but it was a hard-nosed assessment. It wasn't who wants to give. Um, No, I... I totally agree with you, Mike. I mean, just because people have a good heart um, doesn't necessarily mean that their project is something that needs to exist in perpetuity. You know, sometimes projects should have a lifespan. Um, But these are hard decisions. I'm I'm curious for both of y'all. I mean, if if one of the members of your congregation comes to you to sort of ask, hey, should I support this? You know, how would you respond to that person coming to you for advice over whether they should give money um, to a not-for-profit? Because always on the table is, well, then that means you're not giving to First Congress or not giving to Temple. Or how do y'all think about that? Mm, that's tough. That's tough. Um, I don't think I'd ever dissuade somebody from giving to something that supports a cause that they're really passionate about. I think that that, like I said. If I see giving as a spiritual discipline, then then sending your money in the direction of those things which you feel most led to support, I think is really important for all of us. Um, I think in in this day and age, there's a lot of tools out there for vetting nonprofits um, and finding out, you know, how much of every dollar given goes to what they say it's going to. And I do think that there is some due diligence that that we're all probably obligated to do in in this day and age with so many options of places to send our money. Um, But sure, I feel that that tension of if there if that money's going there, does that mean that it's not coming to our community? Um, But I have to believe in my heart that that uh, that we we give from abundant, we we operate from a, a theological framework of abundance and that there is enough to go around when it comes to love and compassion. I didn't mean to deflect your question about 
compassion fatigue during the pandemic mm-hmm. and relating it to Dr. Lammer's congregation, listening to you. I, I think the pandemic has created, as we were discussing before the show, two economies. Mm. There are people, I don't know about you, but I'm okay. And then there are people in experiencing intense private pain. Uh, there's the virtual reality of congregations, and then there's the in-person. And if I was making a pitch, for instance, for First Congo, her church, you know, I would say, I think it's awesome that people in Midtown Manhattan who saw the Thanksgiving parade last week, even though we're me. entering yeah. <laughs> December, um, were watching Lillian's service in Midtown Memphis. But it's going to take people alive in Midtown Memphis, like First Congo, to keep Cooper Young going. It's not going to be sustainable by people who are doing well on the outside who send a gift from the heart for a virtual show. I think the pandemic has complicated sustainability, not just for the bottom lines of not-for-profits, but for where we're going as communities of meaning. Well, it certainly impacted sustainability of many churches, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- there are a lot of churches out there that are, I think, facing the question, can we stay open? Yeah. Um, but for me, I don't worry too much about that because so much of it is about keeping a building alive um, mm-hmm. as opposed to focused on ministry. Mm-hmm. You know, again, you know, our creation of the mystic was not having to worry about funding a building. You know, it was about how do we make our hearts sing, you know, and then I, I just think the money will at some point take care of itself if it's meant to be. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I hear what both of you are saying. I think on, on one hand, I actually got an email from a pastor who uh, has a small church uh, today saying, hey, we are looking to possibly share our church building with another church uh, if we can find one, because that would help us with cost, deferred maintenance, all of that. Um, so I, I think that for for smaller communities this last year has been really, really difficult. Um, I think, too, this whole opening of this virtual world of worship has been incredible in um, allowing you to be a part of multiple communities, take in a lot of different worship experiences, but it also kind of makes us a little bit of worship tourists. And do we ever really feel that invested in one particular community like we have where we then, that's the place where we direct our giving. Um, so there, there's some some good things, but some new challenges that have come uh, as a result of of the last year. And I think too, when I, when I think of giving, particularly to nonprofits, like I said, if if it's part of that spiritual discipline of uh, acknowledging human connection, I don't know if we've had a year and a half where we've felt less connected to one another in a long time in terms of social isolation, which then a contentious election and, and a pandemic, which now has us so divided on so many issues. So when that whole concept of human connection even feels more strained, I'm sure that that then has impacts on on giving to things that that we feel bring us together. Well, so Lillian, you you said First Congo now has twenty not for profits using your building. So, how do y'all decide we're going to let this one use our building, but not this one? How, <laughs> what is the process? For the, that? the brilliant mind of Julia Hicks, who has been our director of mission for over twenty years, and she she has a system of when when folks reach out, she'll look for a million reasons to say yes before she finds a reason to say no, and she will find ways to connect the mission of that organization to the mission of the church. So we have everything from, you know, uh, immigrants' rights attorneys, Hope Works. There's a, a music for aardvarks, belly, Mystic River dance, belly dancers are in our, our our building. So, I mean, we really run the gamut of folks that, that we share space with. Um, and I don't, I, I think a lot of it for her has been kind of a, a gut check, you know. Well, so she begins with saying yes. She always so begins, begins yes. with saying, no. how can we make this work? 
um, and will will always look for a hundred reasons to say yes before she finds that one reason to say no. And I that spirit, I think, has has made First Congo the place that it is today since 20 years ago when they moved into that huge building in Cooper Young. We also ought to point out before we hear more holiday music is uh, we're in a city that was not just approximately rated, but specifically rated the most charitable city in America Mm. by the philanthropic association that rates cities. Here you've got the third poorest zip code in America and the most charitable city more than any other in the nation, Memphis, Tennessee. So the people of Memphis uh, are charitable. It's so, just so what, quest, what, what, where's it making a difference? that idea about us being that charitable. Is and that I, true? I, I have you heard I, that too? Absolutely, I've heard that. And I, I want to believe it. Um, some people question it because so much of that money is going to congregations as opposed to finding ways to, you know, fund the not-for-profits out there. And it's, but so the, the argument against that is that that is very self-fulfilling. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm giving to my congregation that is all about supporting me and my family as opposed to being charitable for the rest of the community. I, how would you respond to that? I, it's not a politically correct thing to say, but there may be too many not-for-profits. Mm-hmm. That is, I think everyone is trying to sell their cause. Sometimes at cross-purposes. Um, so if the goal is to implement a vision, that's one thing. If the goal is just to raise more money, let's say, for instance, the two of you have... Menachem, your child is at one school, and who's the two-year-old? Uh, Rosemary. Rosemary, okay. And you both are part of the same community, but you like your school, she likes her school. <laughs> if you were to merge with 100 in each of your schools, we could have one school of 200, but you're going to give to Menachem's school, let's say you're able to give $10,000, and you're able to give $10,000 then I could say we raised $20,000. Then maybe I'll, I'll go to the Lilly Foundation <laughs> and get a match, and I could say we raised $40,000. When maybe the smarter thing would have been to have raised less money, but to make sure that Lilly and Menachem School is sustainable. So I, I see it not as people just giving to their congregations. I think there's a lot of aggressive... I don't mean that um, meanly. I just mean... People are trying to sell their worthy cause. Mm. And in any of these arenas, I mean, Arts Memphis does a pretty good job, for instance, of trying to bring all the arts together. There aren't, I didn't mean to out them as one that tries to pool rather than work across purposes. I don't know enough about criminal justice. I don't know enough about um, women other than a step ahead here, which is so worthy, and choices and Planned Parenthood. I don't know, maybe there are eight others. <laughs> so how do you economize not money, but impact? There's only church health in Christ doing what, what you do. I could raise money for a third healthcare system that probably would not do what we wanna do as a greater community, even if what I'm doing individually is laudable. Does that make sense? I, 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 that, that's the way I read right. this statistic. That's why I think we're the most charitable. We have so many people talking about so many causes. Everyone's here. I remember when she died, she moved into her child's house. She was in her 90s. And all the mail got forwarded from her apartment. And uh, the daughter of the woman who died shared before the funeral that the mailbox was stuffed and overstuffed with all these causes she'd never heard of. Mom gave $10 here. She gave $15 here. You couldn't fit it in one of those big mailboxes, Um, which shows she, the giver, felt that spiritual sense. What it does for the city Maybe 
it's it's better than not doing anything, but I think we need to get better mm-hmm. at what are our goals. So I'm not cynical about that stat. I really think Memphis is the most charitable. I just don't think we have anyone looking at it in an overarching way, except for the way Cross um, Concourse was built here. Yeah. Well, let me. Um, what do you think? Well, I, I, I want to believe that we are that charitable too. I, I've quoted that a, a thousand times, hoping and believing that it's true. But mm-hmm. I, I don't quite know how we ever come up to those statistics. But I do know from the people that I've gotten to know that I, I believe that's the case. Um, yeah. Well, let me ask for you both personally. You know, you, you mentioned all this stuff you get in the mailbox, or particularly in your email box this time of the year. I mean, do, do you read that? Do you? Does anything like that ever persuade you personally to say I'm going to write a a check or or not? Probably not. Uh, the the mail. I think I I have the standard list of you know maybe. 15 places that that I know that my husband and I are going to give to year after year. But I think additional things come from personal relationship and personal asks, learning about something through meeting someone. Um, I don't think a mailer has necessarily, I don't don't think the free return address labels has ever worked on me. (laughs) One of the many reasons I'm so excited to be with you all this hour is there are probably 72 emails that I haven't read, but 65 are asks for end of year giving every hour. There are about 30 more, right? I'm sure listeners get this. Absolutely. Listeners get it. And it's gotten even bigger, um, particularly around giving Tuesday, which, um, is the the week we're recording here. And, uh, you know, I, I struggle with this, but people who advise us at church health say, absolutely. Those things make a difference which I, I personally find hard to believe. Um, well, you have to participate. Yours was good. I received I did read yours this morning, but there um, are just too many of them. There are too many of them. But so at the end of the day, decisions have to be made about what programs are going to be supported. So for, for both of you within your congregations, now this is moving away from indiv- your individual decisions, but your congregations do support not-for-profits at some level. So how does that decision get made? You know, that First Congo is going to write a check for 100 bucks. That it's probably not going to write a check for $1,000, but going to write a check for $100 to something. But as one of the pastors of the, of the church, how does that decision get made? Sometimes it's uh, based on what the—so I think about our, our contributions to MICA, Memphis Interfaith Coalition for Action and Hope— um, that rally cry comes around every year from the members of our community that are involved with MICA and sort of double check. And now it's in the budget, right? And they'll show up at the budget meetings and make sure that that line item is there to give to MICA. Um, it's it's probably, you know, we look at the programs that have been most rewarding, most life-giving for our community. Um, this year we did a special uh, collection for medical de- debt relief because our denomination um, figured out a way to pack it or purchase packaged bundled debt, medical debt, where essentially um, $1 can buy you 10 times the amount of medical debt. And so we participated in a program that paid off a bunch of medical debt anonymously. They just The folks just get a letter in the mail that says your debt has been paid. We've had some members of our community have long-standing health issues and that know the experience and how crippling medical debt can be. And so that that was one that took off this year. We did a special collection. We, we raised probably $3,000 in a couple weeks' time. Um, so it, I think it's, sometimes it's just what is, what is speaking to the community in the moment. Mm-hmm. Ours comes back to what Lillian said earlier, the, how your budget is a value statement. So, for instance, the holiest day of the year, we don't eat. We fast. So we give back the money we would have spent on food and more to Mid-South Food Bank. That's just a natural extension of that value or the values of equality and tolerance. Uh, In Israel, we have a, we call it a sister congregation. You could call it a brother or sibling congregation, but I mean, it's led by a woman um, and she's an amazing rabbi and they don't get funding from the rest of the Jewish community per se. So we 
adopt that congregation to help that community experience the diversity that we have here in Memphis. Um, so that's an example of one abroad and one local. Well, so that and one last question here, and then we'll go uh, hear Kirk Whalen playing for us. But um, local versus uh, national or international, I mean, how do you think about that? You know, sh- should our charity, our our giving, be just focused on our on our own backyard, or you know, does th- that little bit of money that we could send from Memphis to a national or international? endeavor make that much difference? I mean, how, how do you think about that? I want you and Lillian to have the last word, but I definitely have an opinion on this. Well, go ahead. It's a both and. Of course it's a both and. However, it's a lot easier to love the world than to love your neighbor. That's why the Bible doesn't say, love the world as yourself. <laughs> oh, I love the world. I love world peace. I love justice. Well, try loving your neighbor uh, or the one who lives two miles away. So, I lean heavily towards taking care, not of at home as in my own self or self, but the needs of the city, which could serve as a model, which I think we have. Look what you've done. Um, It doesn't mean that other cities can't do a church health, but why didn't you just do a global church health? Because you know you can't do that. You got to start with 50,000 people here. So I know it's a both and, but I lean towards doing the most that we can to ensure the sustainability of where we are in this part of God's world, and then we'll go beyond that. But not forget the other. I'm not opposed to giving abroad. I'm a huge supporter of religious pluralism causes in Israel and Africa and other places, but I'm not sure we do enough here. That's just me. Do you all? Yeah, well, look, Mary and I still support things in Israel that you introduced us to. and um, But I do think it's that personal experience is why we support them. But Relationships. The, yeah. So Lillian, you're, you have the last word. What, what do you... uh, I absolutely agree. I think, it, I think it's both, but I think the personal connection, the personal experience is really important. I know anytime we talk about what it actually means to alleviate poverty, that will never happen without relationship. We can't we can't just write a check and not think about it again when we when we talk about inequities both here in Memphis but also in the world. The relationship component is so key to to understanding and and to actually making change and so um for me it 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 can be both but I think that that personal connection that personal relationship is really important. Yeah. All right. Well, The discussion around money is something I think uh, we should always be thinking about, you know, not just every now and then, but trying to understand how we spend our money because our gifts are a reflection of who we are. Um, And I also think, uh, you know, from a not-for-profit standpoint, uh, being able to put your cause in front of another human being and then ask them directly as opposed to sending an email is always more effective. But um, anyway, let's move on and uh, hear Kirk one more time.
So we are in the green room at Crosstown Concourse and the December edition of The Mystic. And closing us out will be Rabbi Greenstein uh, with the meditation. Since Hanukkah came early this year, we call it Thanksgivingka. It started <laughs> Sunday night at Thanksgiving weekend. Um, it has a universal message, um, this festival of lights. And the message is it takes only a little light to dispel much darkness. And the dark reality of the past two years has been unlike any other, I think any of us have experienced in our lifetimes. And for all the talk of silver linings for most Americans and for many in our Memphis community, the months since last Hanukkah have been filled with more sadness than happiness, more tears than smile, well, at least more uncertainty than solidity. And that's why this message of even when it's darkest, it's always possible to find light resonates deeply, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And um, we'll light the menorah, the candelabrum, which has a helper candle to light all the other candles, reflecting the reality that we really do need each other to increase the light for all. Final thought, Hanukkah is a festival of lights but it's also a festival of darkness because it's only against the backdrop of darkness that you can see light. One of the early rabbis noted that our eyes have a light part and a dark part, but you can only see through the dark part. So perhaps one of many things we've learned on this pandemic journey is that through moments of darkness and anguish, we can still discover light and goodness and blessing, even the presence of God in the healthcare responders and life-saving work of so many. So during this Hanukkah week in December, may we all, no matter what our faith, increase the light of hope and faith and love and justice so that we can see the light through whatever darkness we face. Amen.